You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denver Right, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Denver's Star Community Say Program Has Been Misused and Is Demanding Change by Robert Davis. From Denver Right, I'll be reading There Are More Than 21,000 Votes Left to Be Counted in Denver by Kyle Harris and Obed Manuel. And Kwame Spearman resigns as Tattered Cover CEO to weigh a run for the Denver Public School Board by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading Safe and Protected Homeless Coalition Building Becomes Site of Grizzly Murder by Benito L. Kelty. And Get a Crash Course in Dying as Denver's Deathwives Resurrect In-Person Training by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Denver's star community say program has been misused and is demanding change by Robert Davis. Members of Denver's Support Team Assisted Response Program, STAR, say the organization is being misused with increasing frequency and are demanding that local leaders work to improve the program. Benny Cervantes, organizing director for the Denver Alliance for Street Health Response and a STAR Advisory Committee member, said during a press conference on March 22nd that STAR has been asked to perform policing activities like giving move-along orders to encampments in Capitol Hill and the 16th Street Mall. Anna Cornelius, who chairs the STAR Advisory Committee, added that some STAR members have tried to connect people with disabilities to services. In one instance, he said STAR brought an individual who uses a wheelchair to a homeless shelter only to be turned away because the shelter couldn't accommodate them. This is the exact opposite of what STAR was designed to do, Cornelius said. The demands come amid a tense 2023 election season, one where affordable housing and homelessness have taken center stage. Advocates have said the election of a new mayor and city council represents, represents an opportunity to depart from past policies that criminalize homelessness, like the city's urban camping ban. But mayoral candidates like Chris Hansen, Kelly Bro, and Andy Rougeau have all said they would continue enforcing the camping ban. City Council candidates like Travis Liker would also enforce the ban. Cornelius said there are many candidates running for office who applaud Starr's work, but have never said anything about how to improve it. Star is a group of mental health and substance abuse professionals that responds to calls for health and safety issues that would otherwise go to the police. The program began in June of 2020 as a partnership between nonprofit organizations, the Denver Police Department, and the city's public health agency. A 2022 study conducted by Stanford University found that the program helped reduce crime by as much as 34% in neighborhoods where the organization works. STAR also helped reduce the number of citations handed out by police and reduced repeat offenses by connecting individuals with the help they needed, the study found. We have the resources to serve our community in a way that meets their needs, and we're damn well going to do it, Cervantes said. We just need Denver officials to support us in this effort instead of working against us. 
However, the public hasn't been privy to STAR's work because Denver's Department of Public Health and Environment, which oversees STAR, shut down the advisory group meetings in September of 2022. The public meetings are expected to resume on March 29th, Cornelius said. Going forward, Ariel Lipscomb, an organizer with Dasher, said local lawmakers need to focus on providing shelter space that can accommodate people with disabilities. That includes adding shelter space for people who need wheelchairs and adding medical staff who can attend to people suffering from incontinence or who have trouble eating. If shelters are unable to meet these demands, then Lipscomb said they need to allow STAR to provide those services in their facilities. Our demands are simple, and the needs of our community are simple, Lipscomb said. We must act now. The next two articles are from Denverite. There are more than 21,000 votes left to be counted in Denver, by Kyle Harris and Obed Manuel. Lisa Calderon might still have a shot in the Denver mayor's race if enough of the votes to be counted fall in her favor. As Denver elections continues to count votes, the window between currently second place Kelly Bro and Calderon is narrowing. The latest unofficial vote results, released Wednesday at 5 p.m., showed Bro in second place still with 30,850 votes, about 20.64%, and Calderon with 25,956 votes, or 17.37%. Former state Senator Mike Johnson remains in first place with 36,622 votes, or 25.51%. There are more than 21,000 votes left to be counted in Denver. That number comes from the city's ballot return data and the latest unofficial vote results released at 5 p.m. Wednesday. We are still in this and looking forward to the final vote count, Calderon wrote on Twitter celebrating the latest vote results. Denver clerk and recorder spokesperson Lucille Weinigheim told Denverite that most of the ballots being counted now are from Election Day voters. We got 55,000 ballots from 5 to 7 p.m., Winnegheim said, of late voter turnout Tuesday night. On election night, Bro had a formidable lead, but her campaign spokesperson, Sheila McDonald, acknowledged it still wasn't guaranteed that she'd make the runoff. Bro has widespread support in the 65 and up demographic, according to her campaign, and that group votes early. Calderon took comfort in the surge of voters turning in ballots on the day of the election and has argued that progressives vote late. Be patient, she said on election night. Believe in our community. We build power, not overnight, but through our collective momentum. Believe in one another. Believe in the progressive candidates. We know what we are doing and we'll see you on the other side. In fact, on Tuesday night, Calderon said she expected the late turnout from her base as she sought to upset two well-funded candidates. While Johnston and Bro are the two top fundraisers in this election, Calderon comes in seventh place with less than $300,000 in donation, including Fair Elections Fund 9-to-1 matches. Just know our people tend to vote last, she said. I didn't vote for myself until yesterday, and my vote's still not counted. I know my people, so when you know how progressives organize and how people of color get their votes in, you don't worry about things you can't control. I'm a candidate of working people. I just know that I'm much more relatable to the average Denverite who is struggling in the city. I feel like our message has gotten through. It's just going to take some time for the votes to catch up with that. 
The next round of results will come at 2 p.m. on Thursday, Winnegheim said. Kwame Spearman resigns as tattered cover CEO to weigh a run for Denver Public School Board by Kyle Harris. Tattered Cover's board of director announced the independent bookstore chain is losing its latest CEO, Kwame Spearman, for another possible run at political office. Spearman was a candidate for mayor. He made the ballot but stepped down shortly before the election, and now he's weighing whether he should run for an at-large seat on the embattled Denver school board. There is in many ways an absence of leadership, and we are not focusing on pragmatic, reasonable solutions, and the output is hurting our kids, Spearman said, and we've got to change that. We've got to change that. And I think we need someone who's willing to have honest, truthful conversations about the direction of the district and help the superintendent come up with plans that help our kids. We're just not doing that right now. Spearman's ownership level at Tattered Cover is not changing, though. He took over the shop in early 2021, along with a crew of investors, hoping to save it from economic collapse. While his first year was rocky, with worker dissatisfaction, he and his team have expanded the chain and thus far kept it afloat. He decided to step down as the head of Tattered Cover, in part to pursue his political ambitions. I'm not changing my ownership with the business or my involvement with the business, Spearman said. Whether he will secure a seat on the company's board is TBD. During Spearman's run for office, his law and order politics often raised ire from longtime Tattered Cover readers who threatened to boycott the store. There was definitely angst, I'd say, directed at tattered cover in social media, he said, and that did not result in a decrease in sales. How are sales? We're continuing to be an independent bookstore, Spearman said. The marker I always go after is, are we still operational? The answer is yes, we're still making payroll and there's still books. He anticipates that will continue. We thank Kwame for his time as our CEO and for all his efforts to expand and improve the tattered cover, the board wrote customers. We wish him well in all his future endeavors. Margie Keenan, the company's chief financial officer who served as interim CEO in Spearman's absence, will stay at the helm as the company looks for a new leader. Whoever takes the position will have a tall order, keeping a community institution hit by the pandemic alive into the future. While leadership changes are never easy, we are excited to embrace the opportunities and experiences that this new chapter brings, the board wrote. The following articles are from Westward. Safe and Protected Homeless Coalition Building Becomes Site of Grizzly Murder by Benito El Kelty. On March 22nd, Aaron Lilhander was caught on camera going into Patrick Lane's apartment at the Renaissance Riverfront Lofts an award-winning affordable housing complex located along the South Platte River Trail near the Rail Yards Marketplace Center in Rhino. Lane never came out. Touted by the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless as the agency's first green apartment building, the five-story riverfront lofts project at 3440 Park Avenue West has won state and national awards for the structure's eco-friendly construction and design, as well as its contributions to the community. Lil Honder, a 22-year-old who lives in a homeless camp near the Globeville area and is nicknamed Shiz, 
had been to the building at least once before, according to the police, and was caught on surveillance footage going in and out of Lane's apartment between 2.52 a.m. and 2.57 p.m. that day before scurrying away with some items and a backpack. Five days later, Lane was found dead in his kitchen, stabbed 27 times in the back of his head, to the left side of his neck, his left arm, his left torso, torso, and his upper left leg. The motive? Still unknown, as are the answers for how Lil Honda, who's been charged with first-degree murder, knew the 54-year-old Lane and managed to get inside the Renaissance Riverfront lofts, which CCH has publicly praised as a safe, protected space, like the others it runs throughout Denver. We do everything we can to prevent trespassers from entering the property, but like all apartment buildings that you will hear about in Denver, sometimes people find ways to get in says Coalition spokeswoman Sint Kathy Alderman. Lil Honda did not live at the property. She was not a resident. She was not a tenant. She was not associated with CCH programs. Whether or not she may have been invited in by a guest is obviously not something that we know. Security footage obtained by police shows Lil Honda at the building on March 19th at around 5.30 a.m., entering Lane's un unlocked apartment with what appears to be a knife clipped inside her right front pants pocket, the affidavit says. Less than an hour later, she left carrying a skateboard. On March 22nd, the last day Lane was seen alive and the day he was believed to have been stabbed to death, Lil Honda was again caught on camera leaving the building through a side exit. Now the CCH is wondering whether it needs to rethink its safety strategy and security measures in wake of the incident. Our highest level concern right now is making sure that our residents and our staff on site feel safe and supported, Alderman says. The safety, the comfort, our security at our buildings are top priorities for us. These are buildings that we've often built from the ground up, so we take enormous pride in our ability to provide safe and affordable housing to the community. The maintenance of these buildings is really important to us, and the safety of our residents and our staff on site is very important. It's why we have our security measures in place. That doesn't mean we're not always open to evaluating to see if we can do things better or if we, we can do, be doing more. CCH owns and operates at least 18 different properties and nearly 2,000 units in and around Denver, and it's possible that there have been problems at housing units before, Alderman says but I can't recall anything along the lines of how violent this particular incident was, she adds. Denver City Council approved sending $5 million to CCH in September of 2022 to convert a La Quinta Inn motel into affordable housing. That property sits nearly adjacent to the Renaissance Riverfront lofts with an address of 3500 Park Avenue West. The money came from American Rescue Plan funds, which were sent by the federal government for COVID relief. CCH sought funding out of the city's COVID relief to continue offering a lifeline for people experiencing homelessness in Denver to recover from COVID and to stay in safe, protected spaces, former president and CEO John Parvinsky said at the time. Safety and security are top priorities at all our buildings, Alderman notes. Asked what the coalition's response would be to residents and homeless people who move to the riverfront lofts after the Lane murder and don't feel safe, Alderman says, The first thing is we would figure out what things might make them feel more safe. If that's the presence of more staff on site, then we would try to shift our staffing structure to accommodate that, 
obviously within reason. If it's updates about what's happening in the area or the property, we'll provide that. If somebody is feeling very unsafe and can no longer live there, we would work with them to find a suitable relocation option. The lane killing comes just as CCH's new CEO and president, Britta Fisher, Denver's former chief housing officer, started working at the end of March. According to CCH, the properties it owns and manages include more than 1,700 affordable and supportive housing units. The affordable housing is meant to rent at below market rates, while supportive housing also offers services such as case management. Renaissance Riverfront Lofts was built in 2009 by CCH and comprises 88 one-bedroom apartments and 12 two-bedroom units with low rents and case management services available on site for some. Residents can only live there if they make below the area median income, a state-based standard used by the federal government to determine someone's income status. The Colorado AMI is about $82,000 a year for a single person. The majority of the Riverfront Lofts tenants are also accepted through referrals, according to the property's website. Rent at the property ranges from $345 to $875 a month. The property management wing of the CCH, formerly Renaissance Property Management Corporation, now CCH Property Management, owns similarly named affordable housing complexes, such as Renaissance at Civic Center Apartments on East 16th Avenue and Renaissance at Lowry Boulevard. The CCH website describes the Riverfront Lofts as being the Affordable Housing Finance Magazine 2009 Reader's Choice Award winner for Best Green Project and the 2009 Gold Hard Hat Award winner for Multifamily Hospitality Project from Colorado Construction. Colorado Construction also presented the property with the Gold Hard Hat Award Judges Special Award for Outstanding Community Contribution in 2008, the site says. According to Alderman, residents at the riverfront lofts are given key fobs to get inside the building. It's unclear whether Lilhander had Lane's fob or was getting in another way. It did appear from the video we shared with the police that she was able to get into the victim's unit, and it did appear as by invitation or that they may have known each other, Alderman says. CCH actually worked with police to help capture Lilhander, handing over the surveillance footage, Alderman notes. The coalition refrained from making a public statement, however, saying it wanted to wait until police officially finished their investigation. Lilhander was already in police custody for separate charges when she was identified as the suspect in Lane's slaying, according to police. A friend of Lane's, who has allegedly known him for two years and was said to have used drugs with him regularly, found his body inside his apartment, cops say. The friend, whose name was redacted in the police affidavit, had just gone through more than two weeks of rehab and was visiting Lane when he found the body in a pool of blood inside his kitchen. He made the discovery sometime between 12 a.m. and 3 a.m. on March 27th, according to the police. The friend then left the apartment and went to use several people's telephones, the affidavit says. However, he failed to mention that he found the victim dead to anyone he came into contact with. Cops say it wasn't until around 6 p.m. on March 28th that the friend finally told a female who he talked to along the path in between 3440 Park Avenue West and downtown that he found the victim deceased. When the friend spoke to police, he claimed to have told numerous tenants and the security guards in the building about Lane's death. 
However, no one would believe him, the affidavit says. He even asked to use people's phones, but claimed no one would let him use their phone because they thought that he was going to steal it, police add. Since cops found the body nearly a week after the murder took place, they put out statements asking for help finding the suspect. Investigators looked at security footage to identify Lil Honda. Three days after police discovered Lane's body, and more than a week after his murder, an anonymous tipster told them that a young hum- homeless woman named Erin had come back to the camp at Globeville wearing bloody clothes, which she then dumped. The tipster also said the woman was known to steal and always carried a backpack, according to cops. A search of police databases eventually turned up Lilhounder, who authorities say was on probation out of Jefferson County. After comparing her booking photo with security footage, detectives concluded that they had found the suspect. Lilhounder was in custody at the Logan County Detention Center for unspecified charges. She also had two outstanding arrest warrants at the time, one of which included a request from the Yuma County Sheriff's Department in southern Arizona to transfer her to their custody after she finishes serving time for her other charges. Get a crash course in dying as Denver's death wives resurrect in-person training by Katie Cheshire. In the late 1990s, Erin Morelli's first love died in a car crash. At the time, there weren't spaces where she could discuss her grief and come to understand it. I was super alone and always seeking in various ways throughout college and in my early career for ways to do death work, Morelli recalls. Decades later, she and business partner Lauren Carroll have finally built the reliable space Morelli had longed for. The Death Wives is a collective focused on broadening the conversation about death and helping people feel more comfortable in dealing with it, both professionally and personally. It's been an industry. It's been very corporate for the last few generations, Morelli says. We're changing that. We're stirring it up and democratizing death care. When Carol and Morelli founded Death Wives in 2019 and kicked off its first class at the Lumber Baron Inn, they didn't know the pandemic would soon come and shudder in-person teaching, while also making death a topic at the forefront of everyone's minds. In response, Deathwives switched to online programming and has remained that way ever since. Now, starting in May, in-person programming will be back, with two classes in Denver scheduled so far. Spots are filling up fast, and the first session on May 20th is already full. A July 15th Death Doula Live Lab is also expected to sell out. We were excited to continue teaching online because we were really able to reach a broad audience of people, but our heart is really in the local work and the one-on-one work, and so it's awesome that it's coming back to Denver and that the classes are filling up, Morelli says. Carol adds that learning physical skills, like shrouding a body and caring for bodies without chemicals or embalming, will be much easier in person. She formerly worked as a funeral director for the Natural Funeral and started educating people about home funerals during that time. Morelli, who is a death doula, found Carol on Google and attended one of her workshops. The two dined together afterward and eventually decided to create death wives together. The collective is now a full-time gig for both founders, who stress that the training isn't just for people who want to work in the death space becoming funeral directors or death doulas, people who help people at the end of their lives the same way birth doulas help women through pregnancies, 
What we do is really educate families so that they are prepared, that they know all their rights, Carol says. We educate community members so that they're there to help inform other families of their rights. Since the pandemic made more people recognize death around them, Carol and Morelli built an online platform, Death Folks, where people could talk with others about the subject and access virtual lessons created by Morelli and Carol. When we started talking, I think other people were just like, me too, I want to share my grief, Carol says. We missed out on so much during COVID. We missed out on funerals. We missed out on grieving together. So when we created this platform, I think people were just like, oh good, like finally. Death Wives doesn't just help people deal with the deaths of their human loved ones. It also has a funeral workshop and a class on dealing with pet death. Morelli says oftentimes people who come to Death Wives workshop are just looking for language to talk about death. There are a lot of entry points to this conversation, but ultimately it's a universal conversation since everybody is going to die, she says. Colorado is a state at the forefront of death offering nearly every burial option, from traditional burial to water cremation to natural organic reduction, also known as body composting, to open pyre cremation. Carol and Morelli educate people about those options and tailor programming to different groups. Some workshops are just for an afternoon, and others are six weeks commitments during which, during which people can dive deeper. As the Death Wives return to in-person teaching, the goal is to connect more people with the mystery of death. Morelli emphasizes that there isn't one right way to die or experience death, but that people aren't empowered to select what way will be best for them. Death Wives is working to change that. We just want them to know that they have options at the end of the day, she says. A funeral should be the grand finale, the biggest reflection ever of somebody's life and the impact of their life and the way that they were loved. And that's not the case. That's not the truth most of the time. Carol says that over the years, they have found that almost everyone has a story of attending a funeral that didn't honor the fullness of the person who died. By preparing people to be comfortable advocating for themselves and others when it comes to after-death care, death wives can make a difference. Connecting individuals who are craving the same conversations is what Carol and Morelli are most looking forward to about bringing back in-person programming. In addition to the May and July classes, Deathwives plans to schedule many more in-person events in the coming months, including retreats with the possibility of hosting a plant medicine event that explores how psilocybin can help people process death. I hate that we've kept this a secret from so many people for so long, Carol says. We really do see it helping with those death anxieties, those fears, and with our own trauma. You can't not know that there's so much more, so much bigger than us if you've done psilocybin the right way. Plant medicine may not be for everyone, but that's not the point. Everyone who is interested can find their niche in the Death Wives' many offerings. Everybody needs this knowledge. Everybody needs this support. Everybody is going to go through this at some point, Carol says. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, we have always been the ones who care for our dead. We have always been the ones who sit there with our dying. Denver Ranked Choice Voting Advocates Striking While Iron is Hot by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. With 16 mayoral candidates on the Denver ballot, plenty of voters had trouble deciding who to choose. 
Maybe a candidate matched their values, but that candidate didn't seem viable. Then again, voting for a viable candidate who didn't have matching values seemed wrong. Add to that the length of the campaign leading to April 4th and the prospect of another campaign through a two-month runoff, and many Denver residents felt fatigued and confused right up through Election Day. But there's a solution to these issues, according to advocates for ranked choice voting in Denver. RCV is one and done. Denver would no longer waste $1.1 million on the runoff election, Linda Templin, the executive director of ranked choice voting for Colorado, said at an April 5th press conference in front of Denver's city and county building. RCV is easy, easy, proven, and fair. We know that Colorado voters who use it say that it is easy to rank their choices. The day after the municipal election, Templin and other advocates of ranked choice voting, including Flor Alvidrez, the candidate leading the Denver City Council District 7 race, gathered to announce the launch of the Denver Deserves Democracy Committee, which will work over the next few years to bring ranked choice voting to Denver. Despite being a centuries-old method of choosing a winner, the process didn't catch on nationally until the last decade or so. Maine uses RCV for federal elections and statewide primaries, while Alaska has started using it for federal and state general elections. In plenty of cities across the U.S., including New York City and Minneapolis, employ RCV in local elections. Proponents contend that RCV lessens negative campaigning and allows candidates to focus on the issues. In an RCV system, voters simply fill out a ballot by ranking candidates for a specific race in order of preference. Often, municipalities will cap how many people a voter can rank. If Denver were to adopt RCV and then implement a limit of ranking five candidates, for example, voters could choose their first, second, third, fourth, and fifth preferences for mayor. Or the voter could rank fewer. That's their choice. Once votes are tallied, if no candidate has gotten over 50% of the first place votes, then the candidate who got the fewest first place votes is removed from the ballot. For ballots that had the candidate as a first choice, the second choice then becomes the first choice and is added to the count. This process continues until a candidate gets over 50% of the vote. Nobody is considered to be a frontrunner because they've got the biggest war chest, Templin said. It frees the voters to truly vote their values. Denver could have adopted ranked choice voting in 2021 when city voters made another fix to comply with state and federal laws that require a 45-day mailing deadline for active duty military and overseas citizens and an 18-day mailing deadline for domestic voters. Denver's timeline, which then had a May municipal election followed by a June runoff, was too tight. The Denver Clerk and Recorder's Office proposed to Denver City Council two possible solutions. Move the municipal election from May to April and keep the runoff in June, or switch to an instant runoff system, ranked choice voting. However, the RCV proposal ran into trouble at Denver City Council. Councilman Kevin Flynn, who just won re-election on April 4th, was the leader of this opposition. RCV almost never results in an actual majority winner. It disenfranchises voters who actually know who they want to vote for and favors voters who can cast two, three, or more votes 
denying other voters the opportunity to study the finalists and cast knowledgeable votes, says Flynn, who believes ranked choice voting would have been a disaster in this latest mayoral race. The two-round runoff system is the only voting system that guarantees a majority winner every time. As part of his case against ranked choice voting, Flynn compiled a list of candidates elected through RCV in other municipalities who hadn't received a majority of first-place votes in the first round. His arguments worked, and council ultimately opted against referring a ranked-choice voting measure, instead putting a proposal on the 2021 ballot to switch the municipal election date from May to April, which voters approved. Despite this setback for RCV in Denver, a number of Colorado municipalities, including Basalt, Telluride, Carbondale, Broomfield, Boulder, and Fort Collins, have already implemented or adopted ranked choice voting. Denver deserves democracy, wants the Mile High City to become the next to do so. According to Lucille Winnegan, a spokesperson for the Clerk and Recorder's Office, the Denver Elections Division team would be prepared to implement ranked choice voting. We're looking forward to continuing that conversation and seeing what that looks like for Denver voters. But there's no rush. We're a little more flexible on the timeline because we want to make sure Denver City Council has an opportunity to do this. We have essentially four years, Templin says. We want to make sure that it's a careful stakeholder process. We aren't in that much of a hurry, but it's going to happen. We are going to bring this to the voters. Meanwhile, the count continues in the Denver mayoral race, with a runoff slated for June 6th. Referred Measure 20 Landed in the Rough for Developers of the Park Hill Golf Course by Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh After a four-year-long campaign to develop the defunct Park Hill Golf Course, Denver voters have voted down a proposal to lift the conservation easement on the property. The returns from 10 p.m. April 4th show that Measure 20, which sought to lift the easement and allow development, is losing. Out of the 102,398 votes counted so far, just 39.6% of voters have cast their ballots for the proposal, with 60.4% against. Shortly after that count was released, opponents released a statement from Harry Doby, treasurer of the No on 20 initiative. For the second time since November of 2021, the citizens of Denver have voted in decisive fashion on the future of the conservation easement, he said. We were outspent 9 to 1, but the voters were not fooled by the false narrative that the land had to remain a golf course. Now we look forward to the future of this land in working with a new administration. The possibilities are endless. Westside Investment Partners the would-be developer of the property behind the Pro-20 campaign, conceded at the same time, issued this statement. The Park Hill Golf Course will forever be a case study in missed opportunities. With historically low turnout, Denver has rejected its single best opportunity to build new affordable housing and create new public parks. Thousands of Denverites who urgently need more affordable housing are now at an even greater risk of displacement. Because the Park Hill easement is unambiguous, the land will return to a privately owned regulation-length 18-hole golf course. The site will immediately be closed to public use or access with no housing, community grocery store, or public parks allowed on this site in accordance with the will of the voters. 
Westside Investment Partners, and the Holleran Group are grateful to every partner, community organization, volunteer, and voter who campaign for a brighter and more affordable Denver. Westside, which paid $24 million for the 155-acre property four years ago, had poured $921,093 into the campaign for this measure, while the opposition had just $138,823 in funding. The mixed-use development Westside had proposed for the property included affordable housing, 100 acres of open space, and land for a possible grocery store. But Denver residents who want to keep the property as open space opposed the developers at every turn. Groups like Save Open Space Denver and Yes for Parks and Open Space, which counted at-large Denver City Council candidate Penfield Tate and former Mayor Wellington Webb as supporters, rallied against Westside's proposal. Opponents of development landed a measure on the November 2021 ballot to require a vote of Denver residents before a conservation easement could be lifted. The proposal was clearly aimed at the Park Hill Golf Course project. Voters approved the measure while rejecting a Westside-backed counterproposal that would have exempted the golf course from such a requirement. That set the stage for a vote on the conservation easement, which Denver City Council referred to the April 4th ballot. In the lead-up to the election, Westside and its partner in the development project, the Holleran Group, struggled with negative press associated with a lawsuit filed by the Sisters of Color United for Education, which had been leasing space in the golf course clubhouse before a falling out. With the loss of Measure 20, Westside will have to pivot. As noted in its concession speech, the development firm could turn the land back into a functioning golf course, potentially even with a top golf facility. It could also try to craft a new deal with more community benefits and ask the voters for another chance. Or the company could give up and sell the property to the city, which could turn it into the park that residents have been calling for. DCPA's musical adaptation of Alice Walker's The Color Purple honors black women by Tony Tresca. I first read the book The Color Purple by Alice Walker when it came out while I was in drama school and had never read anything like it, says Timothy Douglas, director of the musical adaptation of The Color Purple by the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Theater Company. The entire thing is Seeley's conversation with God. It was so arresting and inspired my imagination with a story that I felt was very theatrical from a first read. Walker's heartbreaking story about a young black woman living in rural Georgia during the early 1900s was published in 1982. The color purple is told through letters Seeley writes to God that chronicle her traumatic home life and struggle for freedom. Seeley is raped by her father has her babies taken from her, and is married to an abusive husband. Despite the men in her life taking advantage of her, Celie's resilience gives her the strength to fight for her independence and restart her life. The novel won the National Book Award for Fiction and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1983, making Walker the first black woman to win the prize. The book taps into an aspect of black life that I haven't experienced, but it is related to things that my family, who lived in the South, have talked about, says Douglas. I had a close connection to the story because of my ancestors. When I originally read the book, I actually remember crying, which hadn't happened to me before. Following the success of Walker's book, 
The story was adapted into a 1985 film directed by Steven Spielberg that featured the talents of Whoopi Goldberg, Danny Glover, and Oprah Winfrey. The film was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Believing the narrative would translate well to the stage, producers Scott Sanders, Quincy Jones, Harvey Weinstein, and Winfrey worked with composers Stephen Bray, Brenda Russell, and Ollie Willis, as well as book writer Marcia Norman, to create a musical adaptation of The Color Purple. When the production opened at the Broadway Theater in New York City on December 1st of 2005, it was nominated for 11 Tony Awards, with Lachance winning Best Actress in a Musical for her performance as Celie. John Doyle revived the musical in 2016, first at the Chocolate Factory Theater in London, and then at the Bernard Jacobs Theater in New York, where it won the Tony Award for Best Revival of a Musical. While the scripts for the productions in 2005 and 2016 were almost identical, the book was only changed by about 20 lines, according to the author. Doyle's revival scales back the design elements in order to put more of an emphasis on Seeley's relationship with God. Although Douglas had never seen the musical before, performed live, he was familiar with the show from his work on the regional premiere at Portland Center Stage at the Armory in 2018. Back when Chris Coleman, who is currently the artistic director at DCPA, was on staff at Portland Center Stage, he asked Douglas to stage his own version of the revival of The Color Purple. The national tour was still making its way across the country, so most theaters couldn't get the rights, says Douglas. But Portland was able to get the rights to The Color Purple because the show wasn't touring there. By the time I was able to direct the musical in Portland, Chris had moved to the Denver Center and asked me to come do the show for him here. While the framing is similar to the production in Portland, the Denver cast's collective energy has brought new energy to the story that makes this production feel fresh. After diving into the book of the musical, Douglas realized that it didn't make sense to direct The Color Purple as a traditional presentational musical. Instead, he staged the musical like a play. The challenge of the production is making it seem like everything is coming out of Seeley's imagination, says Douglas. When you make it three-dimensional, add a bunch of people on stage, and introduce conventional musical theater elements, it can pull focus from the story. So everything is geared toward making the audience feel as though they are witnessing a conversation between Seeley and God. Given the events in Seeley's life, she is shut down when we first meet her, so the environment as people enter the theater is very closed off, he continues. The set is made of weathered wood with withered vines, yet as the musical continues and there are moments of evolution, the set reveals itself, and light literally comes shining through cracks in the set. Portraying the character of Seeley requires a powerhouse performer who's able to play the character at a variety of ages and emotions over the course of 40 years. Douglas envisioned Maisha McQueen, an Atlanta native who has appeared on Broadway, in the role of Seeley after working with her on the Portland production. During our previews in Portland, while I was watching her play Sophia, I realized that she would make an excellent Seeley, says Douglas. She's a kind, generous performer who has energy pouring out of her. We knew we needed to bring a cast together who could match her energy. And while everyone in the cast has their own specialties, they all beautifully complement the production. The Color Purple's choreography leaned into the individualized ability of each performer rather than focusing on unifying movements. 
In some musicals, like a chorus line, everything has to be uniform and look as precise as possible despite the uniqueness of the bodies in the room, says choreographer Lady Dane Figueroa Edidi. With this musical, I was able to work in collaboration with the artists based on our shared cultural memories to find different ways of moving. The musical movements are rooted in black cultural dances and intentionally paired with the lyrics. There is no separation between the acting, dancing, and singing, says Aditi. They are all rooted in the emotional reality of the character. It's an honor to work with performers who have such a high level of musicality that they bring to the music and words. Along with music director S. Renee Clark, whom Aditi describes as brilliant, the creative team has been working with the cast and crew of The Color Purple to finalize the show during its preview period. Tickets for the musical are available at a reduced rate during the preview process, while the show is still in development, before its opening night on Friday, April 7th. After the premiere, tickets will fluctuate in price based on availability during its run through May 7th. While the creative team hopes everyone enjoys the musical, the true desire is for audiences to recognize that the story of the color purple doesn't end when the performances conclude. We have Seelys, Sophias, and Squeaks living among us in 2023, says Aditi. I hope people acknowledge that we have a country full of black women and use their frustration at the injustices that happen in the musical to support black women across the country. We need to make the world a place where the Seelys of the world are able to be honored, loved, and accepted without being impeded by violence. The Color Purple opens on Friday, April 7th and runs through May 7th, Denver Center for the Performing Arts, 1101 13th Street. Adam Deitch talks about his new solo album, A New Lodo Venue, and Making Beats for 50 Cent by Emily Ferguson. It's rare to meet someone in the Denver music scene who doesn't know Adam Deitch. He's the Grammy-nominated drummer for the jazzy funktronic band Lettuce, one half of the electronic outfit Break Science, a Pretty Lights collaborator, and part of the new supergroup Butterfly Quintet, which just won a Best of Denver award for Best New Band. But many may not know that while Lettuce was starting out in New York City in the late 90s and early 2000s, Deitch was also a successful beat maker, composing for the likes of 50 Cent. He had been making beats since age 13, inspired by such producers as Jay Dilla and Madlib, and immersing himself in the sound of that hip-hop era. I've always been making beats, and I used to produce for rappers exclusively. Redman, 50 Cent, he recalls. It was great. I used to go to his office, the G-Unit office in New York, and I would skateboard over there from my apartment. He'd be in there lifting weights and listening to beats, and I would go in there with my skateboard, and they would put on my CD, and this is how long ago this was, and they would listen to it. And one day, after going there for a few months, they finally picked a song. It ended up being the first song on his Curtis record, the one that he went up with against Kanye. Later, when he was performing in 2010 with Pretty Lights, the EDM project of Darren Vincent Smith, Deitch was inspired to start producing beats outside of the rap sphere. I played Smith a bunch of tracks, and he was like, wow, this stuff is really good. You should probably think about releasing it on its own, Deitch says. And he planted the seed, and then I started doing that. And I'm happy that he did, because I've really enjoyed putting out this music and doing shows. 
He's releasing his latest solo album, Take Your Time, on Friday, April 7th, and is celebrating with an album release party at Meow Wolf on Saturday, April 8th, which is going to be a totally immersive experience, he promises. Live visuals will be produced by Diethylamid, and openers include Ethno and the Parisian. Years in the making, the aptly named Take Your Time encapsulates a soothing array of soundscapes that massage the mind with ease, with a perfect balance of both calm and energy imbued in each note and melody. I call it mid-fi beats, not like lo-fi, where it's super relaxing, and not like hi-fi, where it's big-time hip-hop. This is in the middle range, where you could just chill to it. You could drive up to the mountains and put it on in the car, smoke a J to it, Deech explains. It has a relaxing vibe, but it still can get you hyped. I wanted to convey just a good vibe. While the music is all under Deech's name, his collaborative spirit is on display throughout the 12-track album. Back when he was a fledgling beat maker, Deech would dig through bins to find the perfect samples. For Take Your Time, he turned to his peers and musicians he'd find on Instagram while scrolling through the pandemic. Enter the quarantine era, and all of my awesome musician friends were just expressing themselves on Instagram. Amazing pianists like world-renowned Jason Moran, synth wizard Sean Martin, and many more were posting musical gems on their respective accounts. The idea came to me that this was the new proverbial record bin I was looking for. The concept was born here for Take Your Time, Deech says. You know, the samples weren't from a record. It wasn't from a live show. It's literally just them at home, playing piano or playing vibes or whatever instrument, he continues. I decided to use those little Instagram clips as the paints that I would be working with. So I would sample little pieces and create songs around it for each artist that I found. It's sort of like a sample collage of a lot of my favorite musicians and friends. Deech recorded bits from the songs that artists were sharing online during the pandemic and chopped them up around his own live and sampled drums. He would also add sub and real bass, Fender Rhodes, and basically any other element I heard to complement the sonic centerpiece, he explains. From there, the album took shape. From decades of many bands, as well as being a producer, Deech knew that he would need permission from each artist, which he and his team covered thoroughly. The hard part was just reaching out and making sure that they're all covered and taken care of, and so that's why it took a little longer, Deech says. That's why I call it Take Your Time, because you got to give credit where credit's due, and if you work with people, you have to credit them and make sure they're taken care of. And so that's what my main goal was with this, to hopefully shine a light so people go and check out the other artists that I worked with and look at their discographies. Deech also had to take his time because he has a hand in so many other projects. In February, Break Science, for which he plays drums and produces alongside keyboardist Borum Lee, released its first EP since 2018. Butterfly Quintet, the supergroup he created with Lee, Benny Bloom, also from Lettuce, seen veteran Hunter Roberts and Dominic Lally, Big Gigantic, released its first album in November. After his Meow Wolf show, he'll be heading to Jazz Fest in New Orleans to perform every day and night with Lettuce and other collaborators. And Pretty Lights, also known as Smith, just announced he would be touring after hiatus. Deech is likely to join him. I try to give every project as much time as I possibly can, Deech says, 
And that's what keeps all these things rolling and keeps them all relevant. It takes a lot of work, but it's worth it. And he has yet another project in the works. Deech is a consultant for a new music venue coming to 1448 Market Street called The Orchid. The owner, Pete Foster, is a really good guy, and he reached out to me because I've basically seen so many different venues in my long career, Deech explains. He wanted me to be a consultant as far as not just the music, but how the club should look, how it should sound, who should work there, the whole aesthetic of the venue, like having flowers and all sorts of things. The venue is set to have a private soft opening in mid-April with Butterfly Quintet and will open to the public toward the end of the month. The website currently is listing concerts beginning April 28th. I'm very excited about this space opening. I've never done anything like this before, and I'm very excited to showcase all my favorite artists in Denver and beyond and outside, Deech says. Because if anyone recognizes just how amazing Denver's music scene is, it's Deech, who moved here in 2015 specifically because of the area's attraction for musicians. I just fell in love with the scene and how people out here really support original music. It's just such an amazing place to be for a musician, he says. Denver is a hub for the live touring industry. L.A. is for recording and Nashville's for recording. New York is a lot of jazz and jazz-inflected music. But Denver is the London of America. It's the electronic music capital of America, Deech explains. A lot of bands move here because there's so many great venues, so many great promoters, like Scott Morrill from Cervantes. It just makes it really great for musicians to thrive if you're doing original music. Deech is certainly thriving here, and the future looks bright for Denver's ultimate collaborator, whose industrious nature remains unfettered. The goal is for people to know that I'm not just a drummer, and hopefully, if I keep doing this and I keep putting out records that I produce, I also want to get into producing some bands, which is also a goal of mine. And I'm looking forward to doing an album where it's all live musicians that I really love, Deech says. So this is just part of the point of the whole plan to get the music out there that's in my heart. Because the only way you can really enjoy being a collaborative, a good collaborator, is if you're able to do stuff on your own as well. Adam Deech album release party at Meow Wolf, 8 p.m., Saturday, April 8th, 1338 First Street. Tickets are $22. Pretty Lights is back, plus other Denver concert announcements by Chris Speed. It's been five years, but Pretty Lights is back. The artist just announced the new Soundship Space System Tour, which will kick off with six Colorado dates. The first three will be at Mission Ballroom on Friday, August 4th, Saturday, August 5th, and Sunday, August 6th. The other three will take place at Dillon Amphitheater on Thursday, August 10th, Friday, August 11th, and Saturday, August 12th. Lotus will be hosting two benefit concerts for the family of Chuck and Charlie Morris at the Fillmore Auditorium on Friday, April 21st, and Saturday, April 22nd. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.